Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we will explore ideas that positively shape our world. I'm very excited to talk to Dr. Harvey J.K., who's a professor emeritus of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. He's an award-winning author and has published 16 books on history, politics, and revolutionary ideas. And today we'll be discussing his book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. Professor, thanks so much for your time. No, this is a pleasure, all the more because it's a labor podcast. Thank you. So with an interest in framing this conversation on generating solutions from a better understanding of history, political economy, and labor, could you briefly talk about your experience in organized labor with the American Federation of Teachers? Yeah, well, I should just mention that my for the first year of my full-time teaching, I was teaching in Minnesota at a state university there. And I was there a member of MEA, Minnesota Education Association. And when I came to Wisconsin, which was the fall of 78, that's right, fall of 78, it, it, I was shaken. I was really surprised that for a start, university faculty did not have collective bargaining rights. And I say that because Wisconsin was the first state, 1959, to grant public employees collective bargaining rights. But somehow or other, university faculty were left out and probably because the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the, the largest campus in the state, was a, had a more elite position, and it's quite likely that faculty there did not pursue collective bargaining rights, whereas at the four-year campuses, which is what my campus has, be, has always been, except for limited graduate programs, um, we, we were treated lower wages and all that kind of stuff. So I think there was a little more energy. When I got here, there, as I said, no, no collective bargaining rights prevail for university faculty. But, we, but I did encounter at first uh, a chapter of WEAC, Wisconsin Education Association, um, NEA state um, chapters. And we, we pursued the question energetically, but it just, it went nowhere. It, it just went nowhere. So, you know, one paid dues, but one didn't see any kind, of, any kind of success. And then that collapsed. And for a while I joined the AAUP, which was not historically in any fashion a labor union, but it had become all the more so. And we figured that might be the best way to, to approach the question. That eventually collapsed as well. That would have been in the course of the nineties. And then I guess it was in the course of the 2000s on one of the other university campuses, um, AFT was starting to really take off. And when the chapter was launched here, it, it grew fits and starts. And then just it just all of a sudden grew. I think the younger faculty were given the state of uh, economic questions and all of that. They just, you know, they, they rallied to the, to the cause. And I have to say that I've, so I've been active in the AFT for until my retirement, and now I'm on the retire, retiree council, however they pronounce it. Um, but I generally deferred the last few years to, um, to my younger colleagues who had, had more energy and leadership, uh, uh, how can I put it, aspirations, let's say. But the more at the same time, and I think this is equally important, when I came to Wisconsin, I wanted to get involved in the labor movement. And I had, I had been speaking to someone a labor historian down down in Madison with the State Historical Society. He was telling me about um, work he was doing with a number of labor unions in the western part of the state, offering labor studies, especially labor history classes, to make workers all the more aware of the story of labor. And I thought, wow, that'd be a great idea. And I came back to Green Bay and I attended a, a couple of meetings of uh, the Labor Federation, but I couldn't generate any interest in it. Having said that, 
within that same year, a number of us, mostly from mostly labor people, but with a few academic types as well, we organized the Wisconsin Labor History Society. And so it must be now, this could even be, I don't want to exaggerate, this could be close to 40 years that we've been in business, so to speak. And we have a really sizable membership. We have very active organization. We have sizable conferences every year. This past year, in the spring of uh, 2020, we were supposed to, I invited my friend Sarah Nelson to be the guest speaker, our keynote speaker. And the problem was that the pandemic struck and everything collapsed in that sense. But we're planning, we're, we're back in business and we're planning now a September conference. Anyhow, the Labor History Organization is very closely affiliated to the AFL-CIO in this state, as well as to a whole host of other organizations. And ever since the early 80s, I have um, been the coordinator, the organizing coordinator of an annual Wisconsin Labor History Essay Contest for high school students, which is funded by labor unions and chapters across the state. So that's my, that's my intimacy with the Wisconsin labor movement. And I do want to talk a little bit um, at the end of this conversation about how we can get more youth involved with the labor. So that's that's great to hear that you have that essay contest. And then um, before we start recording, you mentioned that the pushback from Scott Walker, Governor Scott Walker, 2012 attacking the public sector workers uh, has also yes. uh, affected uh, the, the the teachers unions within Wisconsin. Oh yeah, decidedly. So Act 10, as it was called, which was uh, enacted in 2011, and people will probably remember or recall that in 2011, public employees and our labor and, and general allies across Wisconsin, we occupied the state capitol for some time. It was, a it was an effort, I believe, led, because I wasn't there in Madison to begin with, led by the Graduate Student Association, which is a union at UW-Madison. And we went down one particular weekend, and there must have been easily 100,000 people surrounding the Capitol. And I don't know how many thousands who were actually camped out inside of the Capitol. Eventually, we were, it was all cleared. I didn't sleep over, but we were in the march and the occupation. And I can say that it was actually, it may well have been one of the most spirited and decidedly inspiring days or evenings of my life when you saw all of these folks gathered there and you know and all their diversity from little kids who, who came with their parents or grandparents all the way through to the to the age of grandparents and then at times breaking into you know this is what democracy looks like and so if anyone asked me you know about solidarity my mind immediately goes to that moment when we were occupying the capital and then we, we lost our collective bargaining rights and it just devastated the teachers unions then the Wisconsin Education Association in a lot of schools. But our AFT chapter, and I think some other places in the state at other university campuses, we've, I can at least speak for our chapters, remain very active, very dynamic. And I actually think it's possible we've grown in number with the idea that we'll win back our collective bargaining rights when democracy returns to Wisconsin. Yeah, this may be for a different conversation, but Wisconsin has such a history of progressive activism. And then at the same time, this hugely reactionary element with the John Birch Society and then things being manifested in, you know, the the people like Scott Walker. So it's, it's I'm, yeah. I'm from well, Michigan you're as well, and it has that Michigan, same tension like, as well, so. Yeah, well, in Michigan, I mean, in many ways, the states have paralleled each other to the, in the sense that that push for uh, the the right to work law that, it, that, that 
prevails now in Michigan, we, we fought, I think our, our, the vote here in the state legislature came maybe a year later. So, you know, who would have thought that, that the Republicans would Dixify the North, you know? Yeah, there, there's a lot there to unpack. So yeah, let's, let's focus on this book of yours. And uh, before getting into the four freedoms, as a historian, what got you interested in FDR and the New Deal? Well, okay, first of all, I grew up in a Roosevelt Democrat home. Okay, I don't know anybody in the family who even thought of or entertained the idea of voting for a Republican, I'll make that clear. And, and Roosevelt, by no means was he a saint. Okay, it wasn't that kind of thing. But it really was the case that my parents were greatest generation. They had come through the depression. My father fought in World War Two in the Battle of the Bulge, uh, came back a wounded and decorated veteran. Uh, my mother was working during the war years, but did what she could at the USO in the evenings. So there was this real sense that they had that, that for example, the New Deal, the New Deal saved America, that working people were fundamental to making the New Deal work. And they also had this ethos, all the years that I, I remember that if there's, a, if there's a referendum to improve the schools, or other kind of public services, you vote yes, okay? So um, anyhow, I, I, Roosevelt was sort of there. I didn't actually get specifically interested in Roosevelt uh, for quite a while. I didn't train in American history. I trained in Latin American history and Latin American studies. And my ch by the way, my childhood hero was Thomas Paine. And I wrote a book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, which came out in 2005. And before that, I wrote a young adult biography of Thomas Paine. Um, which by the way, if anybody's interested, won the New York Public Library Award for as a young adult book. So, you know, don't hesitate to go look at Thomas Paine, who by the way, came to America after he was fired for what we would think of as labor activism in, in Britain. But anyhow, so I, when I was working on, on Paine and I decided I wasn't gonna just write the life of Thomas Paine, I was gonna write the life and legacy of Thomas Paine. I wanted to, I wanted to discover the degree to which historians had been all wrong, that his memory had been suppressed. So I ended up rewriting it, the, the story of America through Thomas Paine and his legacy. And when I came to, when I came to the Roosevelt years of the, of the American story, I was really, I was really amazed. I, I didn't realize it, but I was really amazed that both Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt had made a great deal at critical moments of Thomas Paine's memory. And I won't go into the details about it right now, or maybe another time we'll talk. But um, I got I got sort of intrigued by this connection between Roosevelt's interest in the American past and his articulation of the four freedoms in 1941: freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And they really were intimately connected. And I and I'm convinced in many ways that well, he was a brilliant. Um, rhetorician. He had speech writers, but it's known that his best lines of every speech, what they call the peroration, were often his own words that he would sort of spin them out in the course of going over the, the drafts that his speech writers had, had created. And so uh, as, one, as one looks at him ever, ever more closely as I did, I really was impressed by the way he harnessed American history. And you couldn't help but imagine that when he spoke of the four freedoms, he also had in, in the back of his head you know, Thomas Paine's words, he had the Declaration of Independence in his mind, he had Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and that he was going to try to create in the 20th century the kind of words that had inspired Americans back in the late 18th and 19th century. 
And it was very effective at doing that. Uh, it, you know, probably after Lincoln, he's probably the most quoted president in American history and maybe the, the most quoted president. And that continuity. So, so it really had to do yeah. with, it was basically because he embraced Thomas Paine, I had to look more closely at him. That's how it came about. And I've been doing just not super deep research, but um, Roosevelt's great, great, great something grandfather uh, or relate relation was Isaac Roosevelt, who was involved with the Revolutionary War, uh, was definitely around Thomas Paine, I'm sure, during those time, or at least influenced by. That's an interesting uh, question. You're teaching me something. I didn't and know then that. Clint Clinton Roosevelt, and part of the same uh, lineage, uh, writing in the 1850s, wrote uh, an essay on the science of government founded on natural law. And this question of natural law, I think, is, is a really, really interesting um, focus on, on the four freedoms as well as being a part of an essential component of government and legitimacy and things like that. So I'm, I'm still still doing my research to better understand. You're doing it. your research. Yeah, I should. I'll, I'll, I'll hire you as a, a research assistant. <laughs> Keep that up. So I, I want to read a uh, citation from your book. Uh, here it is, The Fight for Four Freedoms. And it is um, chapter three. The people were ready, really, to take action. Taking office on March 4th, 1933, in the midst of a deepening financial crisis, Roosevelt did not only seek to reassure Americans that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself reiterating his understanding that this nation asks for action and action now. He also called on them to reclaim the temple from the money changers and exercise military-like discipline to fight the depression. So could you provide a scene setter of the state of the world when Roosevelt took office in 1933? Okay, well, we, we all know the Great Depression. We all know of the, the crash of 1929. And we've seen plenty of images that conjure up uh, mass unemployment, homelessness, loss of farmsteads, Hoovervilles, as they were known, you know, the, 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 the shanty towns built outside of towns and cities that came to be called Hoovervilles because Her Herbert Hoover was so inadequate in addressing the needs of the American people, especially the unemployed, that uh, you would set up your own little shack among others and, and you would dub the, the, you know, the settlement a, a Hooverville. You know, um, I mean, it, it was devastating. The unemployment rate officially, you know, was something like 20%, but quite likely it was far higher because there was a lot of underemployment. Um, one out of every two African-Americans was unemployed at, in, the, in the worst days of the Great Depression. Um, a, a real measure of how bad things were is that marriage and birth rates declined. Okay, so, and I'm, to be blunt about it, I always think to myself, wow, that means people were having, people just were so depressed and without that they were having less sex. I mean, that's an indicator, you might say, of what, of what was, of what was going, going on. And really hundreds of thousands of young people, I mean, teenagers were joining the ranks of, you know, of, of what we came to know of as hobos, you know, the, the, the folks traveling the rails hitching rides on, on highways. I mean, hundreds of thousands. And they were out there because parents told them, we can't, we can't take care of you any longer. So, I mean, we're talking about a situation which was the worst economic and social catastrophe in American history. And I just want to add one other thing when you asked me about how, how, why Roosevelt. I want to make it clear to everyone who's listening that my interest was not only Roosevelt, FDR. My interest was 
the greatest generation and FDR. And the, 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 the ways in which FDR engaged the labors of a generation and also empowered a generation. And moreover, the ways in which a generation of young men and women actually pushed Roosevelt to go further maybe than he even imagined he would go in the New Deal in terms of revolutionizing government. So, so you know, circumstances were abysmal, okay? The future looked bleak. Herbert Hoover was utterly inadequate. The Republicans were still, still subscribing to a sense of laissez-faire kind of government, hands off of the economy. And Roosevelt had come out of a progressive background. Uh, he had entered politics in the early 20th century as a progressive Democrat. And in the course of the years, you know, the teens and then the 20s, he became all the more politically educated and all the more convinced that, that Lincoln got the story straight, that government, that we create government to do for ourselves what we can't do by ourselves. Yeah. And I, whenever I hear about Hoovervilles too, and, and Hoover as president, I'm always reminded too, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, the, the great businessman, yes. who was Treasury Secretary for three presidents, his solution was liquidate everything, liquidate the farmers, liquidate all the unemployed, even if they are thrown on the trash heap of history. Uh, right. you know, just Absolutely. Let them themselves and die. It doesn't matter if they starve to death. And at that time, we always have to remember Hitler and Roosevelt came in to power at the same year, the same time, because the world events right. were so right. crazy. And Mussolini was all and yep. yes. And Mussolini was already in power. And the Japanese were already beginning their expansion in East Asia. So, so it wasn't only, of course, it wasn't only, of course, that the United States was in the midst of a Great Depression. The world was, was in the midst of a Great Depression. Though I think probably, in fact, the worst places to be would have been Germany and the United States during that time. And two different paths were taken out of it. Yeah, that's the fork in the road. And Roosevelt came in, the entire banking system was collapsed. There was like there was no credit creation available, and he came in and, and he declared a bank holiday because there was a complete run on the banks. No one could get any money out, and every, yeah, the entire right. financial system was was wiped away. Right. And by the way, when he then lifted that bank holiday, more money went into the banks than had been there before. The ones that 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 re, that re, that reopened, you might say. Yeah. I mean, that was a, a sign of just how effective Roosevelt was in speaking to the American people in his very first fireside chat in the first days of his presidency and sort of reassuring them to follow up on that, you know, that famous line, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, um, to reassure them that th basically that this was America and that we could pursue a recovery. Um, I'll just make clear, Roosevelt had a great deal of confidence. He had a confidence actually by way of his own faith in God, he had tremendous confidence in the United States as a nation and the incredible confidence in the American people and their capacity to rise to the challenge, which I think may well be rooted in his own determination, though he never did, nobody could re recover from the polio that he suffered, but he did rise, you might say, out of that polio to become the most dynamic figure, political figure in American in the 20th century at least. And as a consequence, I think his own determination, instead of just merely feeding his own ego, actually made him all the more confident that his fellow citizens were capable of great things as well. And I, I do wanna discuss a little bit about 
how polio affected his his worldview, but focusing quickly on the the first hundred days. And you know, Biden is supposed to be sworn in uh, next Wednesday and yes. January twentieth. And what Roosevelt was able to do in his his hundred days was to try many different policies. And I think um, one of his advisors, Harry Hopkins, who he brought over when he was governor of New York, uh, yeah. and, and Harry Hopkins helped administer some of the poor services that the state of New York, or the state of New York was helping with, was right. to put people back to work. And something like yes. 6 million people were given jobs, government jobs within that first six to nine months. And uh, the, the reconstruction, uh, one of the bills that, that passed for, for an actual like reconstruction uh, focus of infrastructure and things like that was passed. And can you talk a little bit about those hundred days that really kept the opposition off balance? Cause there were so many different things coming out instead of yes. Trump like scandal hopping, it was actually a government just trying to do as many things as possible. And instead of just doing one big thing, you do a hundred big things and it just keeps your opposition <laughs> and the media off balance. Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say is that one of the reasons also that I, that I bother to write these histories is that I often find my own colleagues in history who are probably smarter than I am in so many ways, somehow they somehow buy into these little mythologies. And one of the mythologies was that Roosevelt didn't know what he was doing when he became president, that he had no, he had no plan, which was utterly untrue. And, and as you sort of hinted at, the fact is when he was governor of the state of New York, he was already in the midst of the Great Depression. He was already pursuing job creation. He was already pursuing major public works initiatives. So in many ways, he was, he was primed and ready to become president. And in those first hundred days, you bet he, let's see, they enacted um, controls over the banks. They enacted the um, National Industrial Recovery Act, which, which was an experiment really and elements of that experiment failed but what it did include as long as we're on a labor podcast it's important to note it actually included number one the very first federal minimum wage okay and the, and the second thing it included was uh was collective bargaining rights for workers um which which robert wagner a senator from new york was very important in in pushing through as part of the legislation but that immediately unleashed and this is what I mean by empowerment, it immediately unleashed massive worker organizing. I mean, companies didn't know what hit them and they, the only way they could respond was they started creating all the more company unions to try to prevent real labor unions from, from entering into their industries. Um, they also created the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was in order to try to stabilize prices and enable farmers not to be losing their lands. I mean, again, there were mistakes made. It did not, it did not protect sharecroppers in the South. Um, I mean, but you're right. It was over and over again, this, this effort, this effort, call it pragmatism in the American tradition, this effort to try and try again to find a way to lift Americans out of the Great Depression. And by the way, the very activity itself gave Americans assurance that this was that this was a president who cared about them. Okay. And of course, his mastery of radio by way of fireside chats didn't hurt. I mean, people, the fireside chat was not because FDR was necessarily always by a fireplace. It was that radios were often positioned on the mantelpiece in people's home. It was a fireside chat to the listeners. And people would talk about feeling like FDR was in their home or that they were somehow sitting in the White House. So both by action by his language, by his 
choice of a cabinet, which was a much more diverse cabinet than Americans had ever seen before, and a sub-cabinet that included African-Americans. I mean, it was, it was just a very dynamic thing. And I'll give you a prime example of, of something that people didn't think would succeed, but succeeded on a scale unexpected. The, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, which, when it, which was the idea of recruiting young men, unemployed, needy men and boys into these core, into this core basically to fight soil erosion, to build parks, to, to, you know, to basically refurbish the American landscape, which was in desperate straits itself. And what, what's really interesting is most towns at the outset said, don't, don't place a camp here. You, may, you know that term NIMBY, not in my backyard? Well, communities didn't want the Civilian Conservation Corps because they were afraid that all these, these Italian and Polish and Jewish, these ethnic American boys and young men from the big cities were going to come out to the countryside and, and, and basically you know, do damage to their communities and, and threaten the lives and, and well-being of their daughters. And what they discovered within no time at all is that this was the greatest thing since sliced bread, the Civilian Conservation Corps. And the young men who were in it were better fed, they were educated, they learned about conservation. I mean, it was a grand experiment that planted a couple of billion trees, a couple of million to maybe three million young men went through this experience in the course of the next eight to 10 years. Um, and that's what Roosevelt wanted to do. He wanted, he wanted to restore not just the landscape, not just the livelihoods, and not just, if you like, the dynamism of American public life, he actually wanted to restore the purpose and promise of America. And he understood the dignity of work. And he un and when you talk about labor, you the, the thing about having a job and you're being a part of a, a, a mission, a goal-focused communal vision of improvement. And a lot of these young uh, young adults they had no skills. They they were on unemployment rolls or you know in bot cars for years, and they were able to pair themselves with World War One veterans often, and at some of these civilian conservation corps to learn more skills that then became some of the most important leadership in World War Two. And then on top of that, you have the yeah, largest. Just, yeah, yeah, please. Well, I was just going to say before Roosevelt, there really was no unemployment. No insurance. unemployment yeah, insurance. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I did not, there was unemployment. There just wasn't unemployment insurance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, yeah, I'll let, I'll, I'll let, I, sorry, I cut you off in, in your thinking there, but it, it really was, uh, I mean, it was extraordinary. And by the way, and Biden should take a note, and I want to come back to the, to the question of relief and reconstruction, recovery, reconstruction, and reform, those four R's. But Biden ought to take a note because People are already worried that in 2022, the Democrats will suffer the traditional hammering that, you know, that the presidential party suffers, and that is the loss of the control of the House and or the Senate. Well, Roosevelt in 1934, two years after 1932, the Democrats who already had control of the House and the Senate gained even more extensive and more intense control. I mean, Americans wanted to vote to make sure that the New Deal not only continued, but actually became all the more progressive and radical and transformative, okay? So let me just say something, because you, you mentioned this. Right, FDR did not believe in welfare and relief. He didn't like it. 
He believed that Americans wanted work, jobs, that they wanted economic security by having a job that paid. And by the way, when he signed the National Industrial Recovery Act, he actually said, I love this line, no company should be allowed to operate in this country that does not pay a living wage. Now he had just signed a law providing for a minimum wage, but he then basically was projecting that the real America would one day see the creation of a required living wage. So he didn't like relief. And in fact, Harry Hopkins, who you mentioned before, was not there in the first year okay. of the Roosevelt administration. He, he came in, he came down. Um, Francis Perkins, who was the labor secretary and Roosevelt brought him down sort of later in the late, later in that first year because he was gonna take charge of work programs, okay? The Federal Emergency Relief Act, which was a, an initial uh, work related, and then the Civil Works Administration. So, and both of which were predecessors to the really major work pro project, and that was the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, which Harry Hopkins did lead very, very effectively. By the way, so people don't get confused, there were two major sort of public works initiatives. There were, there were others which we can mention, but one was the WPA, Works Progress Administration, and the other was the PWA, the Public Works Administration. The PWA contracted major public works projects, okay? And that was led by a man named Harold Ickes, who remained with Roosevelt to the end of the presidency. And one thing I can tell you is there is no major incident of corruption in the PWA or the WPA. These were men, men and women of incredible integrity at that time. And so the WPA and the PWA together transformed the American national infrastructure, bridges and tunnels, uh, building hospitals and schools, parks. Um, I mean- Airports. Fighting, fighting the Dust Bowl hospitals. in the Midwest. And yeah. hospitals, libraries, post offices, on and on and on. And really, the only way to put it is they transformed the American landscape and the, the America's you know, public infrastructure. Not to mention the fact that WPA also became famous. It's not one of the major expenditures, but it was a huge public relations uh, project in a fashion to remind Americans that they were Americans. The, uh, it was called Federal One, which was the arts projects, which brought music to communities, uh, plays, uh, you know, a theater um, writers went out and performed oral history projects with former slaves who were still alive in the 1930s. Um, the creation of a 50 volume directory of the American states, which would almost serve as a guidebook to the American states, their history, their geography, and so on. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I sound like I'm nostalgic. I wasn't alive then, obviously, but I sound like, wouldn't that be great? Well, it just reminds us of how imaginative, uh, how imaginative a progressive can be if he has confidence in the nation and in his fellow citizens. And my grandparents uh, inhabited some of the first Works Progress Administration housing or, uh, that was related in Cleveland and they lost their house in the Great right. Depression. And so that my family was a New Deal Roosevelt family and, and that really has influenced me as well. And I was able to go back and these public housing projects still exist and are still housing people. And of course we need to build more. <laughs> there's, there's a lot yeah, of- Yeah, and we can do a better, and we'll do a better job of them. I mean, what it's interesting here in Wisconsin, there's a little town right outside of, of Milwaukee 
uh, Greendale, and it was one of the, 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 the few or several uh, planned experimental communities where they built homes, they create, literally created from scratch new communities as examples or models what the, for what the rest of the nation might want to pursue. And I can tell you that, that that town of Greendale is this gorgeous little place. I mean, the homes are small, but and I, I, I almost wish I could, I could get myself and, and the family into Greendale. I mean, they, they knew what they were doing at the time. They really did. And there was a, Max Lerner once said, you know, why do we have to always go into, why do we always have to confront a crisis before we start remembering the lessons of the past, right? Yeah, and there, there's so much there. The, the Greenbelt uh, community as well, just outside Washington, D.C. Right, that's right. The plant yeah. community that, that's really beautiful. And I do want to talk just a little bit about the opposition to FDR. Before he was even inaugurated, he was in Miami and there was an assassination attempt and it ended up killing the, the mayor of Chicago. Uh, there was someone who right. shot at Roosevelt and actually killed the mayor next to him. When Roosevelt was elected, he actually, he may not have been backed by, but by these folks that I'll mention, but he, he was not seen as a threat necessarily by the likes of the very richest people in America, the DuPont brothers and others, the sort of top, top 10 richest people in America. And in fact, in some ways, they actually were welcoming the idea of a Roosevelt presidency. And I'll tell you why. They wanted an end to prohibition. Not because they wanted to be able to drink. They had never ceased to be able to drink during the Depression. I mean, during the, the 1920s, the rich always found their, their liquor. It was this. They knew the likelihood of raising income taxes. And, they, and ta income taxes in those days was only on the rich. And so they wanted to avoid paying more taxes. So they figured, well, if we, if we help enact pro, an end to prohibition, every working man and woman who goes to buy a beer is gonna pay a tax on the beer. That'll help bail the country out and they don't have to tax us all the more. Well, Roosevelt, Roosevelt had a different view of things. He was very determined to tax the wealthy. And I want you to know, I, I did a follow-up book to, uh, I did a follow-up book to the, uh, to the Fight for the Four Freedoms where I, I put together this, this book, I'll show it to people, FDR on Democracy. And if you look closely at FDR's speeches, this is where historians, liberal historians, you know, sorry, conservative historians like to hijack history. Liberal historians have always downplayed the more progressive and radical features of our story. And what I mean by that is FDR clearly wanted workers to be empowered, okay, number one. But he also, he also was very determined to end the structure of power and wealth that had prevailed, that created the Great Depression. And he wanted to tax the rich in order to redistribute wealth. He basically, had, he basically knew what, what the founders knew. If you had gross inequalities, you would not have a republic. Or in our case, you know, all the more in the, as, as the generations passed, a democracy. So he's very clear in speeches that it was important to tax the wealthy in order not to transfer monies directly into the pockets of working people, but to create these kinds of public goods that all working people would be able to benefit from. So in 1935, these very wealthy folks, they organized something called the American Liberty League. And they spent millions attacking the Roosevelt administration as one day it was they were fascists, another day they were accusing FDR of being a communist, another day as a, somebody was trying to regiment America. And by the way, Herbert Hoover, the former president was very much a part of the, throwing those accusations 
at Roosevelt. And even even um, even there were Democrats who joined in on, on the outcry. They these richest men in America wanted to bring down the Roosevelt administration by defeating him in the upcoming 1936 elections. Little did they realize that they could not generate a grassroots movement against FDR. He became all the more popular. In fact, the more they attacked him, he became, the more they loved him, Americans. And as he once said, I welcome their hatred when he referred to these wealthy Liberty Leaguers. So, you know, in contrast to too many, sorry, I'm gonna get political here again. In contrast to too many Democrats who, who, wanna, who wanna make, make Wall Street you know, financiers happy, you know, or the billionaires happy. In the case of Roosevelt, there were many a banker actually welcomed Roosevelt because he was going to straighten things out and, and, and provide a more stable banking system. But the, the richest people in America, you know, they wanted him to, to bring him down. And fortunately, he had the grassroots and they did not. One of my favorite books is this book called As He Saw It, and it's written by Roosevelt's son, Elliot Roosevelt, and it's written 1946-47 as almost a warning about the purge that had just gone on with the Roosevelt cabinet and the Roosevelt policy direction. And in one of the scenes, Elliot Roosevelt is um, reflecting on FDR, his father, saying, you know, these rich people, they're so myopic in their view they're so they're they're so like money grubbing in a way that they don't understand the amount of wealth that can be created. They're actually holding back wealth creation yeah. because they're just not imaginative and they're just so stuck on keeping what they have instead of understanding that by investing into the the full community and everyone getting richer, there, there's an increase of wealth for everyone. And so I, I think it almost right. takes someone from the level of class where he was at, not fall under the sway of these these titans now as you every time you open up a book yeah. or a magazine you see you know bezos or elon musk in this billionaire worship and it, it i think it comes from an insecurity and inadequacy of maybe uh, someone who's aspiring to an upper middle class life and is never going to achieve it and that's what they're reflecting of course they're also getting paid to write that so <laughs> that's just a, a little a when little for what it's worth well, I don't mean to jump ahead too much, but maybe it's not that far ahead because there's only so much time we have. But in 19, beginning around 1938, any, not just poverty, but was starting to, to really be reduced, but inequality in America was, was being reduced. Inequality, the distance between the rich and the poor, between rich and working people. And that process of Reducing inequality continued from 1938 until 1974. It was called the Great Compression, meaning the inequality uh, was reduced. But to follow up, but the point is that what Roosevelt saw came true, because what he said is that if you can create, if you can reduce inequality, okay, and make American lives more secure and more prosperous, then it doesn't mean the rich aren't still going to get rich. So in fact, the rich did continue to get richer, but as they became richer, those who were below them were rising at the same time. And thus the distance between the top and the bottom was reduced. And the argument in the 1970s that Ronald Reagan 
and the Republican conservatives and neoliberal Democrats made about reducing taxes, deregulating government, somehow that that was going to liberate the economy. In, a, in essence, what it did was it made the rich grossly richer and poverty, which was, un, which was being reduced from the New Deal and the Great Society years, started to increase. Working, working people's wages did not rise from the early 70s to the present day. It, that's especially true for white workers, but it's generally true for working people. So in, you know, we only have a few minutes left, but I do want to actually focus on the 1940 State of the Union speech uh, where the four freedoms was introduced. And in some ways, you know, war is raging in Europe at this time. I, I believe the, the Nazis have already yeah. taken over um, yes. large swaths of Europe. So Roosevelt knows that the fight is coming. Yeah, basically, all of Europe was was fascist. By night, by the time FDR spoke, and he knows that Britain was under siege, and and he, there's the Charles Lindbergh of the world fighting East at Asia. his heels as well in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Look, East Asia was becoming part of the you know the Japanese Empire. Uh, Hitler basically had control over Europe, and was doing quite well down in North Africa. Um, it looked like fascism, as as at least one American said, who, shamefully might be the wave of the future, which FDR utterly rejected in because as far as he was concerned, the wave of the future had to be democratic, small d democratic. And so he has this idea that when we're going to war or anything the government's doing, it has to have this, this vision. And part of it is if you're going to war, you're, you need to not just be fighting this enemy, you need to be fighting for something. And that's where this, this introduction of the four freedoms uh, and I'm I'm so interested. Obviously, we we know a lot about the freedom of speech, uh, the freedom of religion, but the two other freedoms. Could you talk a little bit more about that and what those were? And yeah, if you see, if you if you read the speech or hear the speech, it doesn't sound quite as radical as Americans themselves heard it, so, because he talks about freedom from want was to create international. Um, econ an international economy that allowed every nation to provide for the needs of its of its citizens and and freedom from fear basically to create an international he doesn't use the word exactly but an international organization that would reduce the, the growth in armaments and provide for international security but when Americans heard him speak of freedom from want and freedom from fear this is in other words it isn't just the speech makers intentions that matter it's the listeners reception that matters. And, and Americans heard the freedom from want and freedom from fear as a as a promise. So, so for example, African Americans heard freedom from want and freedom from fear as a promise that the struggle against apartheid, segregation in the South, and the gross inequalities that they were enduring was going to begin, that this was going to be, a, that, that this was an effort not simply to defeat fascism broad, as, and in fact, it came to be known as the double V for African-Americans, defeat fascism abroad and fascism at home. Um, Jewish families in any number of cities had been subject to attacks by uh, Irish Catholic gangs that were inspired by the right-wing neo-fascist radio broadcaster, Father Coughlin, uh, out, of, out of Michigan, in fact, uh, Royal Oak, Michigan, I guess it was, who had a huge following. And when, when Jews heard this, they said, okay, our 
parent, you know, our elderly and our children are not going to be attacked on streets. Working people heard freedom from want and freedom from fear and imagined that what they had been doing during the 1930s in fighting the New Deal and in creating labor unions, that was a massive growth in labor organizing. I mean, unprecedented growth in labor organizing, that they believed that the right, that freedom of speech and freedom from want was a further endorsement that labor unionism would in fact grow. And it was really important that Roosevelt made it clear that to fight in the war, to take up the war effort, if it came to that, if it came to the US entering the war, it would not mean an end to the New Deal. He emphasized that the New Deal would become no less important in making sure that everyone was healthy, that people had the right to work. I mean, it was really a, it was a great, a really great speech, but I wanna point something out, which is, we may be able to have a moment to get to the second, the, the post FDR speech that's important, the Economic Bill of Rights. But I wanna make it clear to everyone that not only did FDR give the Four Freedom speech in 1941, which is the most, probably the most important speech of his presidency, and a lot of speeches were important, but it was also, he also then goes on to the Economic Bill of Rights speech. But what people don't realize is in 1932, when he was running for president, mm -hmm. Then and there, he called for an economic declaration of rights. And, and it's a beautiful moment in the speech where he talks about the Declaration of Independence as a guarantee of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it was time for a second declaration. Mm -hmm. That is, liberty, sorry, life required work at a living wage. Liberty, as he would later say, needy people are not free people. And the pursuit of happiness, the empowerment of working people to be able to pursue their, their, their aspirations and their lives with their families. That's in 1932 running for president. Then he gives the four freedom speech, which takes that idea and kind of projects it in a global way. And then, as you know, Evan, in 1944, three years later in the State of the Union message, he, he goes all the more progressive. And he says, he wants to, if, you might say he's giving immediate life to the, uh, to the ideals of the four freedoms. And he calls for an economic bill of rights, which I could tell you is probably one of the most, to me, it was actually the, the speech I first was interested in, but I ended up wanting to get the larger picture and framing it with the four freedoms. And in those it's right to work, food, clothing, leisure, you know, the living wage, uh, farmer's right. Yeah, that's, in fact, people, you can imagine what they thought, a right to recreation? And yeah, he said life, because that was the fulfillment of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How could you be happy without recreation? Yeah, with family and friends, enjoying art and culture, which he's, right. he's supporting, and making sure that everyone has housing, medical care, social security, education. You know, yeah, it's really, I have to say that there was the classic labor ideal, eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, eight hours for what we will, okay? So what Roosevelt really was doing by way of the four freedoms and, and then especially by way of the economic bill of rights idea was he was giving legislative direction, if you like, to the idea of labor, work, rest, and recreation. And I think we're to the point where enough people have seen the lifestyles of the rich and famous and see that they aren't working that hard. So maybe the rest of us can uh, have a four day work week and enjoy our family and community for three out of those seven days. Uh, that's, that's definitely something I'm, I'm pushing for. And I, I know we've reached our time. 
And I just really want to thank you for everything you're doing in fighting for a collective memory of uh, the New Deal and very progressive policies and politics and fighting against the cultural amnesia that the ruling class oftentimes uh, forces upon the, the, the subsequent generations. One more thing if I can, because we didn't get it fully. The four R's, relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform. Now, just last night from when we're speaking, Joe Biden has taken step one, relief, okay? He calls it, um, I forgot, he used a different term than relief. It was like, I, I apologize, Joe, I forgot the word, okay? But, but now the question is for the labor movement to stop being deferential and the labor movement from the top of the AFL-CIO down must take action to push for recovery, reconstruction, and reform. And when we say reform, we mean workers' rights. And we don't need to sit back and just be browbeating ourselves on Twitter, like, oh, Joe Biden did this, Joe Biden did. What are we doing to push him? And we got to push him harder than Wall Street's going to push him. And that's the only way things are going to change. And it's going to take organized labor. It's right. going to take strategic industries organizing and logistics, education, and healthcare, as uh, Jane McAlevey oftentimes uh, points out, focusing on organizing your workplace and, and that collective solidarity that, that is so important in these times. So the fight for the four freedoms, what made FTR and the greatest generation truly great? I know you have many books that you've written since then, uh, since this one. And uh, I think everyone should take a look at all your great work. And Harvey K, I really Thank you. appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate having been invited and it was really, really enjoyable talking with you and solidarity.